Well, it's my turn. Happy New Year. 2023. Wow. Uh, is it just me or does time move incredibly fast? It seems like the more gray hair I get, the faster things are moving. Is anybody, is anybody with me on that one? Today we're going to look at Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. And the title of our study is The Challenge of Change. But before we get started, I want to open us up in a short word of prayer. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to be together and worship you and praise you. And we thank you for who you are and the providence that you oversee and the sovereignty that you have over our lives and the daily goings-on. We pray, Lord, today that we not just hear the ramblings of a man, but that we hear from you in your word, and that we want to hear you, and we want to learn about you, we want to learn about our Savior, and we want to learn about ourselves. And so we lift up this time to you, and we dedicate it to you and to that purpose, and we ask this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Before we read the text this morning, and since we're starting a new year, let's talk about change for a moment, and then we'll read the biblical text, and I'll ask you to stand again. As is often the case at the turn of a new year, we look at our lives, and we look at the future, and we say to ourselves, I would like to do something different this year. I would like to make a change this year. And whether that's the more common resolution type change where we say, well, I'm going to diet more, or I'm going to exercise more, or I want to increase my savings. We might also resolve to pray more or to read the Bible more or to follow our devotionals more closely this year. So today we're going to take a look at a biblical lesson of change and see what we can learn from that and from God's word on the topic of change. For starters, let's all agree that change is inevitable, right? You all are familiar with this old saying that the only thing constant in life is change. And this matches our personal experience. Some changes are easier than others. We change in little ways when we simply change our minds. And sometimes we change due to our environment and outside stimulus, like reacting to circumstances new technology or even political changes can prompt us to go through a change process. There are times when change can be more problematic than that. More difficult change produces an emotional response like fear of the unknown. These changes take time to process and are more challenging. Difficult changes are how we understand difficult changes are how we understand ourselves and how we understand God and how we understand the world around us. These things take more time to process, don't they? They take time to get into our head and heart and, and it takes time to work through the more difficult changes. This morning we're going to look at a group of folks in Numbers chapter 14 that struggled with change a lot and we're going to see what we can learn from them and their example. But before we stand and read the text, and while you find the book of Numbers in your Bible or in your Bible app, I want to give you a little bit of background on the narrative in the book of Numbers so we have some context for what we're going to study. That context starts in Exodus. 
and you don't need to turn there, but you're probably familiar with most of the story of Exodus. Moses is hired by God to lead his people out of Egypt. The Egyptian pharaoh's heart is hard, and he didn't like this idea, and so leaving Egypt was difficult for everyone involved. One climax in the story is the Hebrew people are leaving Egypt, the pharaoh is pursuing them, and as they're in the wilderness, they become trapped up against the Red Sea. And this is where God parts the Red Sea. Everybody's seen the Charlton Heston movie, right? Everybody, or God parts the Red Sea, and the Hebrew people walk across it on dry land, eventually ending up on the other side at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there you get the Ten Commandments, you get the golden calf incident, and instructions on building the tabernacle. Then you have the whole book of Leviticus, which we're going to go through in intimate detail. That No, just kidding. Thank you. <laughs> Not today. But you have the whole book of Leviticus, which we're not going to get into, thankfully. But suffice it to say that the book of Leviticus is the Bible's primary document on what is sacrifice. And then we pick up the story in the book of Numbers. In Numbers, God has set apart the Hebrew people for himself and is going to take them to the promised land, Canaan, or what is modern-day Israel. And if you're familiar at all with the story, then you know that this change, moving from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, does not go as planned, and the Hebrews face many serious and difficult challenges. As a result, a journey that should have taken two to three weeks to complete from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land turns into 40 years of strife, struggle, death and difficulty as the people wander around the wilderness unable or quite frankly unwilling to make the necessary changes to move into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 11 we have the people who are struggling as gossip and rumors spread like wildfire among them and there's a general discontent with the food, the difficulty of the journey and the perceived failure of the leadership. And then in chapter 13, we have the familiar story of the spies, or scouts. And the, the scouts are sent into Canaan with instructions to explore the land and report back to the people what they've seen. And this is an important pretext to our study in chapter 14 today. In chapter 13, God demonstrates that he hears their concerns and understands their fear and wants to help. Up to this point, God has promised to deliver his people into the promised land, made provision for the journey, and laid out what would be necessary for them to get from point A to point B. God, in his mercy and love for the people, despite their mistakes, gives the people an opportunity to see the promised land through the eyes of the scouts. God is going to let the people see that his promise is true and that the land is good. When the scouts return, ten of the scouts give a bad report. They say that the inhabitants of the land are large, violent, and mighty, and the ten scouts are skeptical and report that the task is too difficult and cannot be accomplished. However, two scouts report that moving into the promised land is possible because God promised it, and those are Joshua and Caleb. And this is where 14, chapter 14 picks up. This is where we start this morning. The scouts have returned and reported 
Most of them give bad news. And the people are upset and there's a conflict. So we've reached this peak boiling point in the story in the book of Numbers. The scouts have gone up. They've come back. Most have said that this isn't going to work. God sent us on a wild goose chase. And, and, the, and the people are rising up. And we've reached the boiling point in the story in the book of Numbers. And so let's jump into the text. And if you're able and to honor the reading of God's word, uh, please stand. And we'll read Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jehunam, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them, and with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting of all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me? despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. I will smite them with the pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, and by your strength, and you you brought these people out from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the new land, and and they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of these people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you say these people are one man, or if you slaughter, slay these people as one man, then the nations who have heard your name and fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness." But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to your greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, I, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. 
Thanks be to the God. Uh, thanks be to God for this word. You may be seated. We're going to study this text this morning in Numbers chapter 14 by looking at three groups of people. The first group of people is the skeptical people. And then we're going to look at the faithful few as a second group. And then we're going to look at God's response in the third section. And this morning, as we look at the skeptical people in the first section, in verse 1, the first thing that we see is the severity of the circumstances. The people have had enough. They aren't gossiping and complaining anymore like they were in chapter 11. Now they're crying and weeping at night. Let's not pass over this too quickly. They're facing difficult circumstances and difficult change to the point that they're weeping and deeply distressed over it. Big change is very difficult. And here we see in this verse that their life their circumstances are very difficult. There is a very real struggle which is going on, which leads us directly into verse 2. And in verse 2, we see that the circumstances have degraded so much that they just wish it was all over. They would prefer to be dead instead of where they are now. Their threshold has been reached. You know what this is like in your own life. Circumstances have become more than difficult. And you say to yourself, I'm no longer uncomfortable, but I'm in pain. This season is not what I thought it would be. It's not what I expected. It's hard. It's painful. And I don't want to be here. Well, that's where they're at. And here you'll also notice that they complain about God and not complaining to God. If we look at other areas of Scripture, such as the Psalms, we can see that the psalmist often takes his, his issues and his complaints and his problems to the Lord. He is often complaining that he's being persecuted, or the psalmist is complaining that, uh, is lamenting that things are not as they should be, or he's, ta- or he's saying, I'm being persecuted, I'm being pursued, and taking his, the psalmist is taking his concerns to the Lord. And from that we can deduce that it is a good and, and a good thing for us to take our concerns to the Lord. But you'll notice that the difference of the people in verse 2 of Numbers 14 here is that they are complaining about God. And complaining about God is something completely different than complaining to God. And they show us that in verse 2. And in verse 3, they say that they would rather go back to the way that it was before than move forward. This is a peak crisis moment for the people. From their perspective, things are falling apart. Nothing has gone according to plan. They want to go back to the way that it was. And they're skeptical about God's promise and are in real distress. In verse 4, in fact, it's so bad that the people want to mutiny. They're going to reject the leadership team because the leaders are responsible for this mess in their mind. They say, we reject God and the people God has appointed over us and are going to find someone who can take us backwards because we'd rather be back there than in the mess that we're in now. And note that they want to dismantle the community. What they really want here is in their mutiny is they want to dismantle the community. God has set this community of people apart as his chosen people and they don't want it anymore. They demonstrate with their actions that they want to dismantle community by starting a mutiny. Well, so far, we're off to a pretty bumpy start. It doesn't look good from the people's perspective. But not everybody sees it in such dire terms. 
We have the faithful few who see things differently, namely Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and Aaron. The faithful few, starting in verse 5, we see Moses and Aaron fall on their faces in in repentance. They intercede on behalf of the people and repent for the mistake the people are making. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do is essentially the response of the faithful few. They take the issue straight to God and they want to move things in a different direction. They step into the gap as good shepherds do and intercede on behalf of the people. The people are hurting and acting out and the faithful few respond with, we want to demonstrate that we see your perspective, God, and that we repent on behalf of the people. In verse 6, we see Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes, which is another sign of repentance. And Joshua and Caleb see the circumstances, ironically the same circumstances that the people see, but they see it from a different perspective, and they immediately repent to God for the error of the people's point of view. And then the faithful few address the congregated people. And in verse 7 and nine through 9, we see Joshua and Caleb tell the people that the promised land is an exceedingly good land, and they remind the people that God has promised it to them. They warn the people by telling them the truth. They warn the people by telling them the truth. These faithful few tell the Hebrews that the frightening people living in the land there now are not the concern. And the Hebrews' future living in that land is secure because God promised it. They reflect, Joshua and Caleb here are reflecting back to the people and reflecting back to God God's promises. They honor God by reflecting back to the people and back to God what God has promised. And then we see in the first part of verse 10 and 10a, the people aren't buying it. The people aren't buying it. They're still skeptical and they pick up stones to do away with the leaders. And then in the bottom part of verse 10, we have this dramatic moment. 10b, we have this dramatic moment where just before it all goes south, it's all about to fall apart. This boiling over situation is about to explode. And you can feel the ground rumble. And the bright blinding presence of the Lord appears and stops the whole show in its tracks. And then in verse 11 through 19, here we have a special dialogue that we need to pause and understand. Verses 11 through 19 in the book of Numbers chapter 14 is really one of the most notoriously difficult passages to interpret because it raises a few difficult questions. From first impression, it looks like a scenario where Moses is arguing with God and and Moses gets God to change his mind. This raises questions like, does Moses love the people more than God does? Does Moses have to convince God to love the people? Did God make a mistake and Moses is correcting a mistake that God made? Is Moses talking God out of judgment and talking God into forgiveness? These are tough questions, and after studying this, I'm going to give you my take on this dialogue between God and Moses in verses 11 through 19. Here in Numbers 14, we have a literary tool being used in the text. Literary tools are used all over Scripture, and it is a blessing because the Holy Spirit assumes that we have a brain and that we can see the literary tool being employed. In the Bible, there are parables, 
metaphors, figures of speech, even miracles that are used as tools to make a point. Yes, these events happened literally as described, but to best understand them, we have to take a step back and look at the larger theological agenda that's being communicated. And if you think about it, this makes sense. We have the parables in the New Testament. Jesus did the parables spell out, and, and are they exactly the way that in the Bible as, as Jesus said that they were? It, Jesus spoke the parables, and the biblical writers recorded them. Yes, the parables are as they literally were in the New Testament. But if you know the parables, then you also know that the parable is not really the point. The point is that there's a, point, there's a theological agenda behind the parable that is the point. And the same thing can be true of, of the miracles. We can say, well, did the miracles literally happen? Yes, the miracles literally happen just as they're described in the Bible. However, if we take a closer look at those miracles, we know that the theological agenda behind the miracle is really where the, where the point is, right? And the same thing can be true in, said of this dialogue between Moses and God. And in this dialogue between God and Moses, the Bible is showing us two important things, two very important things. Number one, he's identifying the real problem. The author Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses the voice of God to define the problem. The problem is that despite all that God has said to the people and done for the people, the people are not listening and they do not have faith in God as the good promise giver. This is the real problem. The real problem is not that God has abandoned them. The problem is not that the leadership is a bunch of fools. The problem is not that the promised land is a joke. The real problem is their faithful, faithlessness. And the real problem is identified using the voice of God in verses 11 and 12. And then we have another section where Moses responds to God's initial statements. And this is the and in this section we see the appropriate response to the real problem. The author Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses this dialogue to define the correct response the people should have had. In Moses' response, we see an example of the good shepherd interceding on the people's behalf and verbalizing three essential truths. First, in Moses in his dialogue with God here which is a literary tool, he says the first thing Moses said is that God is in sovereign control. Not the skeptical people and not the mutiny. The crisis is not the issue. God is in sovereign control. And Moses said that God is in control and everyone, even the Canaanites and the Egyptians, know that God is in control. Verse 13. The second thing Moses says is that God's character and God's actions show his love and provision. In verse 14. God has been in their midst, providing the cloud by day and the fire by night. These are God's people, and he is among them and demonstrated his love and provision to them. The third essential truth that Moses' dialogue here uh, shows us is that God's glory matters. God's glory matters. It's not about the mess. The circumstances are not the issue. It's about the promise and God's divine and loving character. What matters most is God's forgiveness and kindness, not the mess in the current circumstances. What we see is Moses reflecting back to God, as a good shepherd would, the truth about the situation. 
and it is done in a didactic and intelligent way as a dialogue between God and Moses. So let's ask these questions again. Does Moses love the people more than God does? No. Moses is not selling God on the people's value. God knows their value, and God has demonstrated time and again how much he values them. Is Moses correcting God? No, Moses is explaining the way that God sees the circumstances. Is Moses talking God out of judgment and talking God into forgiveness? No, Moses is saying, Moses is saying God is mighty, in charge, sovereign over these affairs, and demonstrated his love and kindness toward his people. The text is showing us that the people have this thing the wrong way around. The people see God as the problem. The people see God as the problem. And Moses says that God is not the problem. The people's faithlessness is the problem. The problem is not just that the change is too much to take. The real problem is that the people don't want the sovereign God, a sovereign and loving God. And Moses shows us that the people's perspective is backwards. The text is instructive because it identifies the real problem and the appropriate response in an intelligent way. God loves his people, has worked in them and through them again and again, and Moses here shows us that the correct response to the people's skepticism and mutiny, he shows us the correct response. In a creative and intelligent way, the Bible is showing us the right way to understand the situation. And then in verses 20 and 23, we have God's voice returning and shows us that there are going to be consequences for the people's skepticism, doubt, and getting it backwards. In verse 20, God forgives them. Why? Because he is a loving and merciful God, just as we heard in the dialogue previous. In verse 21 and 22, God reinforces Moses' truth statements. God essentially says that Moses nailed it and that it can be summarized in the simple statement, I am God and you are not, which is not just the truth of this situation, but is a biblical axiom that runs its way through the whole Bible. And God says in verse 23 that the people's lack of faith will have consequences. God says not wanting me has consequences. And those consequences are that the first generation of Hebrews will pass away in the wilderness and not see the promised land. Faithlessness has consequences. Faithlessness has consequences. And what are the consequences? The consequences are that the people will get what they want. They don't want God. They want what they want. They want it their way. And they want it on their terms. And when they don't get what they want, they're going to mutiny. And God's response is, okay, you can have it on your terms, the way you want it, but here's the catch. It doesn't involve me. And the natural result of this choice is not making it to the promised land. 
God's judgment here is letting the people have what they want, which is their own opinions, their own desires on their terms and not God. It's heartbreaking. How many times have you been talking, giving your testimony or talking to somebody about the gospel and you say to them, look at all these wonderful things that God has done. Look at them. Look at the grandeur and sovereignty and, and what he has done to give us grace and forgiveness and that he loves us. And you tell this story and you play out the gospel. And then the person comes back and responds and says, yeah, but I, I don't really like the way God did this. Or I, if, if I was in charge, I would have done it this way. Uh, I, I don't, I'm just not buying it. I, I don't, I don't think that that's right. And it's just heartbreaking. But it's the same response that the people give to Moses, when Moses and Aaron and Jacob and, or Joshua and Caleb have their talk. And the Bible is showing us this, that the people have this thing the wrong way around. They have the wrong end of the stick. The horse is behind the cart. The whole scenario is wrong way around. And God is going to give the people what they want, which is their backwards and self-centered desires. And that brings us to the end of the verses that we read this morning. And before we move on to the life application piece, I want to give you just kind of a brief recap of where we've been So real quick here, we have the skeptical people, which is one group that we looked at. And we identified that this is a real problem. They are crying. They are in distress. They have deep regret about following God in verses 1 and 2. And the people blame God for being deceptive and call God a liar in verse 3. Remember, we said that it's a lot different to complain about God than it is to complain to God. And here they are complaining about God. And then in verse four and 11, verses 4 and 11, we see that they're in mutiny against the leadership. And in verse 9, we see that they're in rebellion against God. And then we have the second group, which is the faithful few. And we see the immediate response of the faithful few in verses 5 and 6 is to repent. Caleb and Joshua reflect God's promises back to God and to the people in verses 7, and 9, 7 through 9. And then Moses reflects God's promises and character in the dialogue that happens in verses 11 through 19. And then at the end of the passage, we have God's response. And God's judgment on the people is to give them what they want. And the lesson here is that there are real consequences for faithlessness. No promised land. And so as we face 2023, it's 2023. We're either going through a change right now that we're not really sure how to navigate best. It's making us uncomfortable. Or we're looking down the path of 2023 and we're saying, I'm going to make some changes in 2023. I'm going to do some things differently in 2023. And I want to know how to do it. And so first thing we should always do when reading an Old Testament text like Numbers 14 is we should ask the text, where is Jesus? Where is the gospel? And so let's look at Numbers 14 and ask that question. There are seven life application principles here that you can see in the form on your outline in your bulletin. The first life application lesson here in Numbers 14 is change is required. Change is required. Like the Hebrews, our journey with God requires change. We cannot stay in the wilderness. We need to, I need to, we need to recognize that we are alienated. We are lost and wandering. And if we are going to follow God's lead, hold him at the center, then change is required. And if we can't get that into here and here, 
then we remain lost. Number two, change is difficult. Change is difficult. The people wanted things a certain way and on their terms. And if we're honest, we don't want to give up control either. And letting go is a lot more difficult than it sounds. We have to let go of the past. We're not going back to Egypt. And we have to let God define the terms and set the path. Jesus said it like this. He said we have to be born again. And birth is not easy. Or at least that's what my wife tells me. And ultimately, we have to surrender self and understand that it's not about us. It's about him. This is difficult. This is really difficult. The people couldn't do it. They were unable or unwilling to accept it. But the faithful few leaned on God's promises and character, and despite the change being difficult, were committed to God's promises despite the difficulty. Number three, accept truth. Accept truth. When we become Christians and the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, one of the things that this Holy Spirit does is it teaches us to see things as God sees them. One of the things as we mature as Christians is that we begin to see the world and see circumstances the way God does, and that's the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that perspective that we learn as we develop and grow and mature and see things the way God does, sometimes that doesn't match the way that we see it. The people couldn't see the truth and made up a scenario that better suited their mood and their pain and their discomfort. And when we're faced with the challenge of change, we need to be honest about where we're at and what we're contributing to the mess and accept the truth as God sees it. The faithful few saw the truth, but the people did not. Number four, maturity is a journey. Maturity is a journey. There's a process going on here, a journey. Moving into maturity doesn't happen overnight. Moving from slavery slavery to the promised land doesn't happen instantly. When we're facing the challenge of change, we need to recognize that we're on a journey. Growth requires pruning so that new growth can occur, and this process takes maturity and time. There is no magic instant formula for maturity in Christ. Maturity comes in the journey. Caleb and Joshua knew this and were ready to take the leap. If we learn anything from this text, we learn that it's not the circumstances that matter. It's our relationship with God that matters. It's not the circumstances that matter. It's the journey with him that matters. The promised land destiny Caleb and Joshua knew this and were ready to take the leap. The relationship journey with God is the point and purpose. And change brings us to the point where we walk with him through change and grow and mature as we travel with him. The journey is the point, not the circumstances, not the difficulty, not the change. Number five, effort is involved. Effort is involved. Faith in Christ sets us free, no doubt. However, it is a freedom with a responsibility to a relationship. We cannot earn our salvation. Can I get an amen? We cannot earn our salvation. It's a free gift. 
The people were already chosen and already redeemed out of Egypt. They were God's people when they were Egypt, and God set them free and pulled them out of slavery, and he redeemed them out of slavery. But that's just the beginning of the story. Now they have to go from the foot of Mount Sinai to the promised land, and there's a journey that needs to be taken, that needs to happen there. The people were already chosen and redeemed out of Egypt, but they had to go on a journey with God at the center to reach the promised land. Relationship with God requires us to participate. Walking by faith is not a one-sided relationship. The promised land destination is secured, but we're not there yet. And walking the journey with God at the center is part of the equation. God wants to journey with you, to know you, to show you his love and his provision. And effort and involvement in that relationship with God is an essential element. Number six, salvation is promised. Our salvation is promised. There is a promise based on the character of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. God is not so much interested in our comfort as he is interested in our redemption. God wants our redemption, and this is a good and righteous desire for us. And God has secured that promise, demonstrated that promise, procured that promise in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God did it because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. Our destination destination is promised on the character and love of the Creator God. There is no ground more firm than at the foot of the cross where God says, It is finished. You are mine. I love you. And I want you to experience relationship with me. The gift of the promised land was guaranteed on the character of God and our salvation is promised. Last and number seven is God provides what he requires. God provides what he requires. He provides the redemption that he requires. If you want to be in relationship with God, then he provides everything that is necessary to be in relationship with him. We don't earn it. It's given The plan for your redemption is secure and provided. The plan is clear. The path is set. The destination is secured. He has given all that is necessary. But we're not there yet. The redemption we need is not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not in our intelligence, or even in the kindness that we show toward others. Those may be good things, and they are, but they're not our ticket into the promised land. God has provided the forgiveness, love, kindness, mercy, and redemption we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that God requires for a right relationship with him is found there in Christ alone. God has provided what he requires. The redemption we need is provided by God in Christ. In the same way the redemption the Hebrew people needed was in the promise and the provision of God not in themselves, their wants, their perspective, but in only God alone. They didn't need anything other than God and what God provided. So it's New Year's Day, no time like the present, 2023, January 1. 
let's make a change. We're looking at, we're, we're going through change right now, and maybe we need a better way to see that change and understand that change. Or we're looking down the pike at 2023, and we're saying, I want to make a change. I want to be, be different on the other end of 2023. So let's all just make an agreement that we're going to come back here and tell amazing stories about how God worked in us, right, over this, over this year. And we'll meet here again a year from now in 2024, and we'll talk about how wonderful God is and how he took us through 2023. But let's plan that out, and let's so so let's actually jump. Get ready, set, jump. We're gonna make this change. We're gonna get ready, and one of the first things we're gonna do to get ready is we're gonna trust, and we're gonna settle in our hearts and mind that this in our in our spirit that we love and trust Jesus, and we're gonna depend on His sovereignty. We're gonna depend on His ever on the everlasting security that God is in control. And we're going to depend heavily on the Christ's irrevocable love for us. So we're getting ready. We're getting ready to make this change. We're getting ready to move into 2023 and make a change. And the first thing we're going to do to get ready is we're going to trust in Christ. And we're going to believe that God is sovereign and in control. And we're going to depend on Christ's irrevocable love for us. So that's going to get us ready. And then we're going to get set. And set is three things. There's a plan, there's a purpose, and there's a path. There is a plan, even when it doesn't look clear. The people didn't see the plan. The people didn't maybe didn't want to see the plan, but there was a plan. God had communicated the plan. There is a plan, even when it doesn't look clear. And there is a purpose. There is a reason God produces change. Sometimes I think it's tempting that when we change happens in our life and something's starting to go awry, we start to say to ourselves, oh, well, God is punishing me because it's not going the way that I think that it should go or it doesn't go the way, it's not going the way that I want it to go. And so God is punishing me. No, 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 no. God is not pum- punishing us when change happens. He is working through circumstances so that we can experience relationship with him and grow and develop and mature. There is a purpose behind the change. There's a plan, there's a purpose, and there's a path. There is a direction. It may not go exactly the way that I think it should go. It may not go the direction that I think we, that maybe we think it should go. But it is, there is a direction and there is a path. There is a map. God has it figured out. Okay, so looking down 2023, we're getting ready. We're, get, we have, we're ready. We're trusting in Christ. We're trusting in the sovereignty of God. And we're trusting in the irrevocable love that Christ has for us. And that's getting us ready. Then we're going to get set. And we're getting set. And there's a purpose. And there's a plan. And there's a path for what we're going to do. Ready, set, jump. And how are we going to jump? We're going to flex our faith muscles. Muscles, Faith is a muscle that gets a workout by lifting heavy things. Faith is a muscle that gets a workout by lifting heavy things. And we're going to flex our faith muscles and we're going to believe. Change is hard, but God is mighty. And we put our faith in his promises and provision. We're going to flex our faith. And then we're going to dive in because we got to commit. We're going to dive in even when the water seems over our head at times, even when it seems kind of hard. Maybe it seems really hard. In fact, the Bible is full of examples of all kinds of people throughout Scripture who committed to the work of God and committed to what God wanted to do in their lives and committed to a change that God wanted to implement in the world around them. And once they committed to it, you know what? It got worse before it got better. And the classic example of this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was, there was nobody ever who was more committed to what God wanted to do in the world than Jesus Christ. But you know what? 
The cross came before the resurrection. It got worse before it got better. So there is no promise that it's going to be comfortable, but we have to commit. We have to jump in. We have to dive. And we're doing this in light of our trust that he is sovereign and our trust that he loves us. And because we have settled in our minds that we trust and believe him and that there is a plan and that there is a purpose and there is a path. And so we flex our faith muscles and we dive in to the change. And then once we're in the change and it's, things are in motion and we're like the people and things are starting to, woo, starting to swirl, starting to get a little dizzy, well, we follow. We return the glory to God through our words and through our actions. And we invest in what he's doing because remember the, 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 the point of what we learn in Numbers 14 is that the journey is the point. The maturity comes from the journey. The journey is not, or the, the point is not the circumstances. The point is not the crisis. The point is not the promised land. The point is that in the process of the journey, through the process of the change, we get to learn and spend time with God. And as he does, he changes us and matures us and makes us into people who are more like him. And that's growing and maturing in Christ and navigating change. So are you ready? Here we go. It's January 1, 2023. Ready, set, jump. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. As we look out over 2023, Lord, we want to have amazing stories about who you are and what you've done. And so we're going to commit. We're going to commit to navigating change. We're going to commit to trusting in you and in your love and provision for us. And we're going to believe that there's a path and a purpose for the change that's going on. And we're going to ultimately work to be with you and trust and depend on you as we navigate change into the future for 2023. And we thank you so much for your grace, love, and provision. And it is in the blessed name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.